Will the Oscars no host still give more shits than James Franco? Exactly what should I mix with Martini Bianco? We've got some news from a listener that I think might hit you right in the emotions. Oh, just go straight in there. Yeah. When I'm feeling down anyway this time of year. Get you while you're vulnerable. This is in from Chris in Crawley, who says, When I was working at McDonald's back in 2001 or so, we did have little packets of mayonnaise behind the counter, just like the tomato ketchup and barbecue sauce packets they have today. Well, now he's just rubbing it in. The mayonnaise. The, the, the fact of the mayonnaise. Good for your skin and hair. <laughs> one day, I don't really remember exactly when, I worked for five years there and it all blurs into one. It was announced that we would no longer be supplied with mayonnaise sachets. Interesting. Ooh. I wonder if that decision was taken in Crawley and then applied nationwide. Crawley is very much the seat of power for McDonald's. Chris says, we were told... This decision was because mayonnaise separates if it isn't kept in a fridge, so it isn't suitable to keep behind the counter. I'm calling bullshit on that one. (laughs) Sachets are good enough, Chris, for the welcome break service stations, Burger King and KFC. Yeah. I think you've been drinking too much of the McDonald's Kool-Aid all these years later. They don't serve Kool-Aid either. Stop drinking the McDonald's mayonnaise. Wake up, sheeple! I think he's uh, a bit of a McDonald's revisionist, basically. Like, he's retrospectively applied this justification that is not true. Well, they've had the best five years of his life, Ollie. (laughs) Imagine the psychological toll. Well, it's an answer, and it's from personal experience, so I value that, Chris, but it's not really a proper answer to the question, why does McDonald's not serve mayonnaise? Here's a question from Patrick, who says, My dad works in bread selling. Is that different to baking? I'd imagine it's what you do after the things have been baked to distribute them to the... He's like a wholesaler of baked goods. Who knows? He might just be one guy with a little basket of bread chatting. Bread! Bread for sale! I've just never heard that before. Like, what... You know, if you meet someone at a party, what do you do? I'm a baker. Or I work for a bakery. Not, I'm a bread seller. I'm in the bread industry. Yeah. Patrick's dad's in the bread industry. And he remarked that National Bagel Day moved this year. I believe it's moved to February the 9th, so there's still time to celebrate if you're listening to this on day of release. Okay, good, good to know. How would you celebrate traditionally, Helen, National Bagel Day? Do you just put a hole in everything? I would um, set up a bagel hoopla. <laughs> what is your favourite bagel flavour whilst we're on it? Uh, I like, well, you know me, I love I love my seeds. So I'm going seedy. I'll probably go just everything. Seeds. Just Just, uh, just, just bagel give me, filled with seeds. Just give me a bolus of seeds. <laughs> Fuck the bagel part. Patrick has a question. He says, Ollie, answer me this. Who decides when these, inverted commas, holidays take place? Such as National Bagel Day. It's a funny use of the word holiday, isn't it? You know, like someone would actually say, oh, I'm off for a week. Sorry, it's National Bagel Day. (laughs) So my religion is bagels, so I'm taking this day off. (laughs) Yeah, it's um, smartphone awareness week, so uh, (laughs) I can't come into work. Um, who decides the holidays? I mean, they're not real holidays. They're um, marketing days, really, aren't they? They're, they're PR opportunities. Because yeah. the, now there must be like 50 different products per day because you yeah. hear of so many of them. There are actually, there are websites where you can go and see what National Awareness Day it is. And yes, oh. there's typically at least half a dozen things going on because you get the awareness weeks coinciding with the awareness days. I want to find out which products I share my birthday with. <laughs> And obviously, like, within categories, it's not necessarily a problem. So, for example, it doesn't matter if it's National Check Your Balls for Cancer Week at the same time as it being National Pork Pie Day. Like, that's not a clash. 
Um, the problem is, you know, the, the pork pie board wouldn't want to put their national day on the same day as the egg day. Right. You can certainly eat a pork pie on the day that you check your balls for signs of cancer. In any case, it's essentially the marketing boards of various different products that aren't very newsy, like bagels, um, that create these days. Uh, because very often, well, actually, you know, checking checking for cancer is an interesting one. Checking for cancer is a story that news-based radio shows like to run on a roughly annual basis. Yeah. Like, it's good public service stuff, isn't it? It's good to tell a mainstream drive-time audience, hey, guys, check your balls. But you feel weird if you're doing that apropos of nothing. Checking your balls, you feel weird. <laughs> or to- oh, talk- <laughs> broadcast. Talking about checking your balls, right, sorry. Talk- yeah, having the ball-checking expert on for apparently no reason. You know, mm. unless the host has just got testicular cancer or something like that. But when it's National Check Your Balls Day then it's like, okay, we're going to talk about this thing today, which we know is of public value and also is a relatively entertaining five minutes of content. Perhaps we can get a celebrity scientist on or a celebrity GP or whatever. So it's kind of making an excuse for radio and TV shows to cover the same old shit year in, year out. My favourite of these days is actually quite a serious one, International Women's Day. And the reason it's my Mm. favourite is because every year, the comedian and podcaster Richard Herring checks who is tweeting when will there be an international men day and um tweets them back it's november the 19th yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, last year he also managed to raise a lot of money for a good cause whilst doing it but also i don't think there's anything wrong with having national days for that reason i mean even if you disagree with what people say like that reaction oh why isn't there international men's day when there is the fact is it gets people talking about a topic which as i say might not be the kind of thing they'd be thinking about in other circumstances. So if you're from the potato board, Mm. yeah, and your message that you're trying to spread through PR across the whole year is, guys, you don't have to fry your potatoes to make chips anymore. You can air fry them. That is not a news story, but it is beneficial to people's health. So I suppose it's that thing of, let's make National Potato Day, and then we'll get a celebrity air fryer on to talk about air frying. I mean, it's that reductive, I'm afraid. Uh, Here's a question from Barbara in Washington State, who says, My husband and I live in the northwestern part of the US, and uh, we've been binging several British TV shows over the past several months. We're big fans of Escape to the Country. Wow. (laughs) That is a gentle show. I was really expecting Luther. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, we think we've cracked the code for several expressions. When people say they want character... They seem to mean wooden beams and log burners, or what we'd call wood stoves. Not necessarily wooden beams. They might want walls that are wonky and a very low ceiling and tiny windows. Yeah, they mean a house that wouldn't look out of place in Harry Potter. Yes. Uh, Barbara continues, We figured out that homely means something completely different in the US and the UK. We know we don't want a homely home in the US, but it seems to be desirable in Britain. Yeah. What does homely mean in the US, then? Uh, It means ugly. Oh, right. So homey in the US is how homely is used in the UK. It, is that like a a way of um, being polite about a house that isn't appealing to call it homey? It's often the way of being superficially polite about a person that you think is not aesthetically appealing. It's a bit like mumsy. Yeah. Uh, well, she says, what's confusing is that virtually every episode of Escape to the Country seems to take place in an area of outstanding natural beauty as proclaimed by some sort of agency somewhere. The government. Right. So (laughs) answer me this. Is an area of outstanding natural beauty the same as the country? No. Are those terms interchangeable? They're not, are they? No, No, because an area of outstanding natural beauty is a... It's a specific thing. It's... Designated. It is in the country, 
But yeah, it's a conservation mm. area in the country. It's a bit like a national park, right? It is a bit like a national park. But a national park in Britain is a bit different to a national park in the States as well. People do live in national parks in Britain. Mm. Like there are towns in them, whereas that is rare in a national park in the States. And often there's like a volcano or something in the national parks in the States. But I suppose the point that she's getting at is clearly there are so many areas of outstanding natural beauty in the UK that you can film an episode of Escape to the Country <laughs> every day in a different one and broadcast it on daytime TV. So how many are there? Are there too many? No, there are like 40. It doesn't cover a huge amount of the available countryside of Britain, but I guess they want something televisually beautiful and people yeah. want to move to the country and a lot of the places they'll want to move to are the places that are also covered by that. But I don't think it is sure. every episode. It's not called Escape to the Suburbs, is it? No. It's not like I want to live somewhere close to a train station and a Greggs. It's people saying I want to live near an area of outstanding natural beauty. The reason why these areas might be mentioned and particularly desirable to buy in is because if you're moving to the country and you want to have a view of the country, if you buy in an area of outstanding natural beauty they're unlikely to build stuff mm. in that countryside because it's protected. So yeah. you get to keep your, your country vibes. Um, although if you wanted to do work on your house or build anything, there are stricter regulations for doing that. I'm not sure I've ever sat down to watch Escape to the Country. Uh, describe it to me. Well, you can only watch it while sitting down. It's really not a programme that you can do anything physically dynamic whilst watching. I suppose what I mean is I may have stumbled across it, but I've never deliberately chosen it. What happens is they show house buyers three houses and one of them is the mystery house which is supposed to mean that oh it's not really what they asked for or is it oh yeah yeah i have seen that that's really weird because the family will say like we want to move to a village in oxfordshire that's got a tennis court and the presenter will say ah but look at this one it's in a cave <laughs> and it's it's in a cricket it's in an actual cricket pavilion <laughs> just think well, that's so not what they've asked for well, why are you doing this no because often the mystery house is the one they go for because really they didn't so they didn't say they'd be up for a converted school but might as well try it right i, I have seen it yeah but I, that's what i've thought when i've seen it when i've stumbled on it i've thought why the mystery house yeah like, why not they've come to you with a brief you've got researchers give them what they want I don't want to see someone challenged. I used to watch Escape to the Country quite a lot when I was doing a very boring job from home early in my career. So like this around 2002, 2003. And the format then was the presenter would go to the first two houses and the people wanting to buy the houses would watch on like an online video. What? And, and then they could choose which one to go to, one of those two or the mystery house. So they would only actually view one house in person. That's weird. Yes, this is a fun programme, watching other people view camera footage <laughs> of a house. I just remembered, I, I met uh, one of the presenters of Escape to the Country now is uh, Sonali Shah. Oh, yeah. I met her uh, backstage at the Audio Production Awards, Glamour, Glamour, Glamour. Um, and I was chatting to her and David Aronovich about fitted kitchens. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was an amazingly partridge-esque name drop, Ollie. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I'd asked her what she'd learned from looking at lots of nice houses doing the programme. I'd forgotten it was Escape to the Country. Um, and she made a great point, actually, about utility rooms, because she'd just done up her house. She said, why do British people put their utility rooms downstairs? You know, like if you, if you have a separate room with your washing machine and your drying machine in it, why do you put it downstairs? Because then you've got dirty clothes next to the food, you've got the smell of the cooking, you've got to carry the clothes between the floors. Why don't you put your washing machine upstairs? And when she told me, I was like, you've you floored me. I don't know what to say. You're right. You're so right. Well, that's a fine American attitude to have where a lot of the houses are newer than in Britain. But in Britain, it might be you don't have drainage. 
except on the ground floor. And also those machines are noisy and make kind of bouncing sounds. You need a pretty solid floor for them. That's true. Yeah. So yeah, maybe it doesn't work in all the houses. And also for a lot of people, the utility room is like a back entrance to the house. So if you've got muddy boots, you go into the utility room and take them off and thus don't pollute the rest of the house with mud. That's what we've got, Helen. We've got a muddy boots room. There you go. So next time you're backstage with Sonali Shah, I hope you bring up these points and then let me know her counter arguments. I certainly will. I don't know what Aranovich will have to say about it. It wasn't Aranovich, it was um, Jay Rayner. I get them confused because they're both middle-aged Jewish men who are on Radio 4. It was Jay Rayner and Tanali Shah that I was talking to about this. Well, now I'm interested. <laughs> what did Jay Rayner have to say about it? Um, I don't remember. He was, he was perfectly nice. He was a bit sniffy about the fact that we'd got our kitchen from John Lewis. You know, which I'm quite proud of. To me, that's an aspirational kitchen, but he went to a bespoke kitchen designer. Oh, jeez. Of course he did. He's a food critic. Yes, I suppose that's true. Yeah, but for food cooked somewhere else, not in his house. Yeah, but nonetheless, like, it's important to him the kitchen looks good, I guess. Plus, he's clearly got more money than me. So what do you mean he was sniffy? He was like, oh, you didn't get a bespoke kitchen, did you? Well, we were chatting about house renovations. (laughs) And that wasn't bourgeois enough. (laughs) I can't remember which one of them said... Oh, you've got done your kitchen. Where did you get your kitchen done? I said, oh, John Lewis. And they laughed. They both just sort of laughed like I'd said a joke. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. It wasn't John that obvious. Lewis. It was more, I just, I knew what it meant, but it was just more of a kind of, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I've looked and the best one is whatever. Did they yeah. back away from you when he said John Lewis? <laughs> He's tainted. Oh, did you find any nice items in the Argos catalogue? <laughs> Oh, back away. I don't want to catch basic bitch. (laughs) I've got a question. Email your question. You can't send me this podcast at googlemail.com. You can't send me this podcast at googlemail.com. You can't send me this podcast at Here's a question from Michael, who says, I'm just watching the news, and a piece about prisons came on. Ollie answered me this. When was the idea of incarcerating wrongdoers first thought up? Well, um, the idea of imprisoning does uh, go some way back, Michael. Like, the the Romans did it. You know, there there are metal cages that they created for the purpose, which have been discovered. Um, And, for example, uh, there was a prison called the Mamertine Prison, which was established around 640 BC in ancient Rome. That was beneath a sewer, Helen. Contained a large network of dungeons where prisoners were held in squalid conditions and contaminated with human waste. Oh, great. So the sewer is definitely contemporaneous with the prison. It's not a later addition. I I suppose the point was they didn't really care. Um, But uh, yeah, I reckon that the sewer came first because then you think, well, we've got a hole underground. Let's put them down there. But I bet even then the the contemporary phone-ins of the day were like... uh, Oh, they got everything down there. Spend all day playing with the human waste. What a waste of taxpayers' money. So here's what I wonder. How long were people in prison for under these old systems? Or were you just put to death fairly quickly if you were in for something serious? Yeah, well, okay. So, like, in the UK, we had the old-time jails, didn't we? They were, if you go to those sort of rather sensationalist museums aimed at tourists clearly places of killing and torture, weren't they? So I treat that as different to the idea of like a rehabilitative, you know, supposedly rehabilitative prison building as we know it now. So the the modern prison in that sense actually only came about in the late 1700s. And even then, how rehabilitative was it rather than just keeping people 
sequestered from the rest of society. No, well, it was there was a philosophy behind it by then. So there were the Quakers getting involved. In fact, in America, some of the groups that mooted the first prison buildings there are still involved <laughs> in running the prisons now. Um, so the idea of a rehabilitative prison building was supposedly first mooted in Benjamin Franklin's living room. Uh, in 1787, uh, there was a pamphlet read that suggested the construction of a house of repentance. There you are, repentance, Helen. Hmm. Doesn't sound that enlightened, does it? But it's it's not rehabilitation, but it's not just punishment, repentance. Um, and the idea was that if you gave the convicts solitude, they could become enlightened upon what they'd done wrong rather than just be punished. So it was it was to avoid things like the gallows and the pillory and the stocks and the whipping post. And, and that is what led to the first, in America, design of a purpose-built prison, which was the Eastern State Penitentiary. Huh. Where's that? Philadelphia, 1829 to 1971. Till 1971? Yeah, but I mean, actually, a lot of the prisons we have in the UK started as Victorian prisons. Um, I mean, that was the era when the idea of having lots of private cells with toilets and running water and a window and a walled-off outdoor exercise area like they came to be seen as very squalid and degrading and whatever but at the time they were created they were seen as being really humane and fair and decent and they lasted for centuries oh well apparently uh the british prison in shepton mallet closed in 2013 at which point it had been in operation since 1625 Good Lord. But I suppose the, the conditions for everyone outside of prison were pretty poor. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, workhouses existed in Britain for yeah. centuries, and those were basically prisons uh, for people who were poor. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or people who'd, you know, been impregnated by someone. So equally difficult to get out. Like, I find, I find this question quite grim, because you just think, like, how humans have been inhumane to other humans possibly for mm. fairly arbitrary reasons since uh, the dawn of humans but i suppose you know since the dawn of humans the question of what do we do with people that society judges to be beyond the pale if we want to be more decent than flogging and killing them in public it you know remains a relevant question doesn't it so although the answers might be controversial looking back on them you sort of understand the motivation take galley slavery for example <laughs> you know that is rightly condemned these days for its human rights abuses. You know, the idea of sticking a load of prisoners on the boat and, and forcing them to row to Australia doesn't feel correct, you know, especially if their crime was stealing a loaf of bread, etc. But the theory behind it, the theory of these people have done our society a wrong, what do we do? Well, we might as well get work out of them rather than simply lock them up. You know, they might as well do a job, they might as well contribute something back to society. Like that still motivates a lot of discussion now doesn't it that might be the theory but not the practice i've got um an 18th century lockup just down the road from me what is it now is it still a prison uh, <laughs> no, it's only one cell on the high street so it wouldn't be a very useful prison i mean there's no space oh. for a prison guard just for the prisoner so it's, it's a little dome from about 1800 um and a plaque on the side that says uh, do well and fear not be sober be vigilant oh yeah because there were the the drunk tanks those little single cell things yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. It's basically, if you get pissed, then the publican throws you in there and calls the police to come from the nearest town. But because they're on horseback, that's going to take an hour. So that's where they keep you. But a lot of those like single cell prisons, there was one in the village my grandparents used to live. So they used to take me to see it as a child. Probably as a threat. Yeah. So a lot of those might predate the police. And so I wonder who got to let you out. Town jailer? Yeah. It always struck me there's an element of vigilantism in it. Because who's to say the publican deeming that you're too drunk to be on the streets is right 
Yeah. Like who's who's judging that? Like yeah. they could just decide that you've said something unacceptable, so you're going in the in the locker. Or the publican wants to go and steal your things. Yeah, exactly. Get you out the way. I I do have in the back of my mind though, like a jail plan. If ever I got sent to jail, huh. I'd I'd want to write something. I think there's the only place where I'd have the focus to write because you do normally get pen and paper, don't you? I don't know. Because the pen can be weaponized. I doubt that I'd be in a wing of a prison where they'd be worried about me having a pen, but you, you could be right, yeah. Isn't that a thing in uh, Evelyn Moore's debut novel, Decline and Fall, the um, protagonist gets put in prison, I forget why now, and he has a lovely time because he just sort of treats it like kind of study break. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's slightly like glossing over the fact that it's an enforced study break. Like a de- It's more like a detention. I mean, it's a, it is literally a detention than a study. But I suppose the, the thing is, I already have a platform, so that's what I'd be thinking. I'd be in there thinking, how am I going to use this when I get out? Where, you know, it's like all those Tory MPs that went to prison, isn't it, in the 80s and 90s? They all thought, right, I'm going to write my memoirs, I'm going to go on talk radio stations and talk about prison reform. Yeah, it's a career move, isn't it? It's not one they would have chosen, but they know how to use it. Whereas your average prisoner, that's not really what's on their mind. No, well, they don't really have the privilege to exactly. leverage it in their media careers when they get out. Here's a question from Felicity, who says, My boyfriend James is currently reading Oliver Twist and commented on the amount of underage drinking happening in the novel. Helen, answer me this. When was a drinking age first legally introduced? Interesting question, because when you when you read a Dickens book, the children will be drinking gin or mm. something. It is watered down, but it's because the water wasn't that safe to drink, so alcohol was kind of a practical measure i've heard that a lot is that really true like it makes it safer to drink dirty water if you mix it with a spirit how does that work doesn't the alcohol kill the bacteria but you never hear that now do you in countries that have droughts like oh there's no water here so people are going to drink beer yeah so so why was it a thing 300 years ago well okay for a start you need water to make beer so it's not a question of like replacing a drought and secondly, it's dehydrating. So if you're somewhere very hot, it's not a good idea. Places with contaminated water. You never see a report on the news from a country with contaminated water where people are getting sick drinking the water and they say, people are so ill they've turned to drinking beer instead of... Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't come up anymore, does it? If the narrative was like, you know, these poor Ethiopians are drinking beer all the time, like the right-wing press would just jump on that and, and slightly, uh, you know, poison the well, no pun intended, for any charity money, you know, fundraising uh, attempts. They also used to brew different strengths of beer... So in medieval times, they did three fermentations from one batch. So the men would drink the strongest one, the women would drink the second strongest, and then the weakest one would go to children and nuns and monks. Also, is it a storage thing that, like, if you store water in a vat for ages, it gets bacteria in it, whereas um, beer, you can store it for longer periods of time? And also, uh, as well as the bugs being killed off in beer, it was um, somewhat nutritional. It used to be thicker. So it it had some of the nutrients of bread, but in an easy-to-consume liquid. Okay, but the point is, I mean, I know that there are a lot of ne'er-do-wells in Oliver Twist, so maybe yeah. that's the point. But, I mean, surely children plus alcohol must have created some pretty terrible crimes. What I was surprised to learn is that even now, if you're over five, it's not illegal to drink. It's just illegal to buy alcohol when you're under 18. Is that right? But it must be illegal to feed it to your nope. children, if you, isn't it? If they're over five, it's not illegal. And in Scotland, there, I think there is no lower age limit. Uh, this is like wow. England and Wales. But in practice, if you are <laughs> administering alcohol to your children on a daily basis, I'm sure that the social workers can intervene. Well, I guess then that it's a, you know, if you poison your child and they have to go to hospital, that's a crime, whereas giving them a little yeah. bit of wine 
when their sex is probably okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting though, yeah. It's also illegal to buy alcohol for someone who's under 18 if you're using their money. So like a kid outside an offie ah. that wants to give you 10 quid to go in and buy stuff for them when you're an adult. Yeah. You can't do that, but you could buy it and then give it to them, technically. Yeah, okay. This is all from the 1923 Intoxicating Liquor Sales to People Under 18 Act. Before that, it was slightly earlier. So 1910, it was under 16. 1908, it was children under 14 weren't allowed on licensed premises. I think the first act was 1886, the Intoxicating Liquors Sales Children Act, and that banned selling booze to the under 13s. So I'm going to go with 1886 as when a legal drinking age was introduced. But it's more a legal booze sale age rather than a legal mm. drinking age. And what I find interesting nowadays is not the age at which it's fixed, but how seriously people take it. Do you still get ID'd when you're in America? Yeah, it's sort of like a formality. I got turned away from a pizza place once and my ID on me, since I don't drink. <laughs> and I'm in my late 30s, I didn't think it necessary. What's the pizza eating age? It's uh, 55. <laughs> What do I love so much about Tom Waits? Is it his gravelly voice or his gravelly face? Or the instruments he made from metal plates? And an anvil and a saucepan. If you love him so much, then make a podcast about it. I have. Build a Squarespace site so you can tout him. I did. And one day there may be an award even your show can win. It already did. Fuck you both. Yes, thank you very much to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. Uh, their tagline at the moment is "Look like an expert right from the start." Oh, I think there's something in that, don't you, Helen? Like, if you if you if you run, I don't know, an IT support firm, but the reality is it's basically just you and a mobile phone going out to help old people restart their computers. You can make yourself look like a high flying digital entrepreneur consultancy by using Squarespace and giving yourself a jazzy website. If your core market, though, is people that don't know how to use a computer, is giving yourself a jazzy website a helpful tool or not? I think it is. Because I, I think, whatever age you are now, it's accepted that if someone's website looks a bit crap, you're not going to use them. That's how I see it. You know what I mean? Like, if they don't have an internet press, it's like, who are you? <laughs> it's like Martin's dad's business card has several different fonts on it and a, a Virgin Media email address. It doesn't matter. Yeah. He's the Santa Dave. It's for his Santa gigs. It matters. Maybe if we set him up a Squarespace, maybe that should be uh, his birthday present. I reckon that would go big if we set up your dad a birthday Squarespace. Uh, his birthday is in a month, so we should do that. That's a good idea because you could get him the domain as well, DaveTheSanta.com. The Santa Dave. The Santa Dave, not DaveTheSanta. Sorry. Dot net. Forgive me. Then he could be the Santa Dave at the Santa Dave dot net. That's much better than a Virgin Media email address. The at Santa Dave dot net. Do you get email addresses with Squarespace? You do. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> And if you want to try Squarespace out, you can use the free trial at squarespace.com slash answer. And then when you're ready, you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using our code answer. Uh, and thank you as well to uh, Chris in Salem, Oregon, who wrote to us to say that he started a website on Squarespace last month and then decided to donate the money that he saved from a year's subscription to this podcast. Ah. That's jolly nice of him. Double win, Chris. Well, double win for us. You got your discount. Well, no, he gets a discounted website, we get some money. Very happy with that. But he's Thank spending you, the same. So he doesn't really win, except he feels like he's supporting two organisations, Squarespace and us. But it's us who are the winners. Like I say, double win. I'm not going to read right. the T's and okay, C's. Okay, double win for Ollie Mann. <laughs> 
is a question from Jane, who says, One of my mum's friends has a farm in the north of Scotland. They have sheep, but they also have quite a few peacocks. It's not a fancy stately home. In fact, the bits the peacocks stay in is almost a junkyard. Ollie, answer me these. Why do they have peacocks? Surely that's a question, Jane, for your mum's friend, not Ollie. I think it would be easier to ask them. Yeah, I'm going to guess why not? Status symbol, you can get a peacock for 50 quid. And wouldn't you be curious if you had the space and you lived somewhere where it wasn't going to annoy the neighbours with squawking? Agree. They're beautiful to look at. Maybe one just wandered in one day and won't leave. Jane says, is there farming potential with them? Or are they just pets? Where are peacocks indigenous to? Surely not Scotland, correct. So why So why do they have them? Or why would anyone? Well, did, do you know where peacocks are indigenous to? Yes, they're indigenous to the Indian subcontinent, or at least the, the kind that are mostly imported to Britain, the blue peafowl. Mm-hmm. They came from India. What happened was, because they're so beautiful, people like took them to the Middle East, and then the ancient Romans got hold of them and spread them to a lot of Europe, and Britain got them because ancient Romans brought them here. Okay, so not Scotland. No. But with regard to her other questions, why why would you have peacocks and is there farming potential with them? There is farming potential in the sense that you can eat them, if that's what she means. Yeah. But um, essentially that hasn't been done since medieval times. Uh, people used to roast them and then dress them up on the table to suggest they were still alive. Yeah, they would like peel off the skin, wouldn't they, and then put it back on the cooked peacock. So you still got the benefit of having a spectacular looking peacock. Yeah. Because otherwise you've just got a bird that looks like any dead roast bird. But the bird meat apparently was very rough and tough. Mm. Um, So that sort of faded out. And I would suggest generally, in addition to the things that you said, Helen, like, um, you know, if you live on a farm, you've got lots of space for them to roam around and fewer neighbours for them to annoy with mating calls at four in the morning. Um, Also, the, the presence of a peacock can elevate a humdrum environment. Oh, yeah. With a hint of the exotic. I mean, that's basically what it's about, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a way of saying, look at this sophisticated, beautiful thing. And the whole environment changes. I mean, like, so last year we stayed in a, a hotel, a resort hotel in Dubai. It's an entirely man-made place. It's on a beach made of imported sand. The view was of a partially constructed bridge to a non-existent theme park because the money collapsed <laughs> when they were building it. Wow. Were you staying in a metaphor? <laughs> the thing that made this particular resort genuinely feel exotic were these very well manicured grounds because they had grass everywhere which of course also is not native to Dubai so obviously they'd spent money and they'd sprinkled it with water and the presence of peacocks because you know immediately I suppose it does it suggests India like you said it suggests colour and vibrancy and sophistication Uh, the other place that I've seen them wandering around weirdly is Port Merion in Wales yeah Mm. to add to the eccentricity and the grandeur though like he's not he's not going for a, a little cottagey vibe in Port Merion Hmm. when he built it. It's a peacock-compatible aesthetic. But uh, the other appeal peacocks had was that um, they were a a Christian symbol of eternal life and Christ. It wasn't everything. Uh, Yeah. I literally can't think of anything that wasn't a symbol of Christ. But it's confusing to me because they were also a symbol of vanity and pride because they have these spectacular tales and uh, they will get them out if you're fucking with them. But religious symbols don't always make sense, do they? As Not we've at all. Many times on this show. But what's impressive about peacocks is that they do adapt pretty well to harsh climates. Even though they're from India, they do okay in Scotland, and they have them in Canada and stuff. By the way, we should stop calling them peacocks because technically they're peafowl. Peafowl. That's right. And so the females are called peahens. Yeah. 
I know that because there's a pub in St Albans called the Peahen, and I googled it one night whilst I was waiting for a bus. Wow! Um, and uh, and yeah, the, the whole genre of bird is peafowl. I was also interested that peacocks are not covered by British wildlife laws because they're not wild birds in their classification. Yeah, but then I suppose the fact that they've been imported and someone spent a lot of money to breed them and then buy them sort of almost by definition means they're going to be looked after. I suppose they get stolen, but then they probably get sold on rather than killed, don't they? Like I say, the meat's not nice. Yeah, but I was surprised at how cheaply you can get peacocks. 50 quid for a six-month-old peacock. Yeah, but then there's a lot of veterinary bills and a lot of specialist food along the way, isn't there? And also, you know, it might be a 50 quid peacock. How are they going to get it to you on your farm in Scotland? Yeah. Uh, that's got to be a 100 quid journey, hasn't it? <laughs> There's not Uber for peacocks, as far as I know. Is there? Is there? You might just not have downloaded it. <laughs> now, I, I wonder whether, because when I see a peacock, I see the fantastic display of feathers. Does that mean that the males are the only ones that sell, really? Is it like an inverse yeah. of the, the battery egg farm where you only get the female ones? Because I don't think I've seen female ones. Or do the female ones have the feathers, but they're not erect them? The female ones are usually a lot dowdier. So do the hotels in Dubai only get male peacocks and not get peahens? Well, I think they might have peahens that they just keep around the back for mating. For mating, yeah. Because you're going to get a lot of sexually frustrated peacocks otherwise, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, apart from the odd gay peacock, I don't know how many, what a, what proportion of peacocks are homosexual, but... No, I don't know if many Beyond studies have that. been done about peacock sexuality. <laughs> I feel like bird studies are very heteronormative. Except for the ones into penguins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, some proper like queer theory in penguins. Here's another question of animals from Kate in Leeds, who says, uh, in memory of Hammy, 1997 to 1999, uh, so this is a question dedicated to a dead hamster, Helen, answer me this, where do hamsters live in the wild? They are uh, from Syria. Most domestic hamsters are descended from the golden hamster, which uh, was first captured in Syria, then exported in 1930 by an archaeologist and uh, then got bred and exported to other countries as pets. That's extraordinary because, you know, like it would be a shock to see a recorder being played in an orchestra. I I can't imagine a hamster in any context other than a nine-year-old's bedroom now. But it's odd because they are a rodent and there are lots of wild rodents. But I suppose because hamsters prefer dry places like deserts and sand dunes, Mm. you'd have to be on the lookout for them in those environments where you're not often present. I did not know that hamsters have very poor eyesight and uh, they navigate by smell and so that they can get around. They've got these smell glands on their backs and they rub those against things so they've got a little hamster smell trail. I wonder if that helps them survive in a nine-year-old's bedroom. As fun as I think it would be to roll around in one of those rolly balls. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be fun. But then actually, if you're a hamster, you're taken out of your cage, put in the rolly ball. You're like, if I run, I can escape this place. But you can't. The prison comes with you. (laughs) Were you ever uh, taught the fundamentals of pet ownership? Oh, yeah. Through the medium of hamsters? Yeah, we got to take home the school hamster for the Easter holidays. Wow, lucky hamster. It died. Oh, not so lucky hamster. It busted out of its cage (laughs) and then went down the stairs, which was ambitious for a small rodent, and then died under a cupboard. What happened? Did your dad melt it into a sculpture? Died under a cupboard. No, my mum did melt the base of the cage, though, because she was putting the cage somewhere warm, so the hamster didn't get too cold, because the house I grew up in was fucking cold, and uh, the base of it melted. So all in all, it was a disaster, because she had to buy a new hamster and a new hamster cage. Did you pretend it was the old hamster? No. No. Do you remember the day you went into school and have to say, I killed the hamster, but here's a new one? I think there was a bit of kudos. <laughs> like, yeah, fear <laughs> me now. I am the one who knocks. 
Valentine's Day impends like our own oblivion, uh, but sooner. And um, to celebrate it, perhaps you might like to try the Answer Me This Love album, an hour of sexy, romantic times in the Answer Me This style. And here is one of the sexy jingles that Martin composed exclusively for the album. Oh, yeah. I'm going to show you what goes on in my bedroom Between my po-po-poker munchies I'm going to update my profile on LinkedIn Until I fall asleep That is very special. Uh, there are um, numerous jingles like that. How many, Martin, do you remember that you wrote? No idea. He was transported to a, a special sexy plane. It's at least four. So if you enjoy there's at least four <laughs> songs like that uh, in the Answer Me This Love album. Uh, it is a one-off album of exclusive material. You will never hear those questions on the podcast. Uh, it's a whole hour of love and sex and dating and genitals. Uh, it is available now on Amazon and iTunes and at answermethisstore.com for the bargainous price of only £2.99. Here's a question from Fiona who says, Helen, answer me this. What the hell are bullet journals about and who invented this methodology? Ryder Carroll. I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro technique, but bullet journaling seems to be a similar model. But where does it come from? Well, I'm trying to think of the similarities of both of these because... Pomodoro technique is like dividing your day up into specific chunks of time and then doing one task for that 25 minutes and then taking a five minute break and then doing another 25 mm. minutes. Whereas bullet journaling is it's sort of itemizing your day in written form, but it's it's not necessarily doing the thing. I suppose both of them are making you more conscious of how you're spending your time, but one of them is doing the thing and the other one is writing down the thing in a complex and decorative way. Yeah, I mean, I think one of them is easily explainable like you just did pomodoro technique chunks of 25 minutes with a break i get that understand what that is the other one is completely incomprehensible i mean i've spent like 10 minutes reading into bullet journals watching the videos on youtube minutes no but like long enough to think what can i learn from this technique that i could use in my own life to be more productive and it's all about like modules and yearly migrations and collections and it just makes me anxious yes same but that's because i'm a very disorganized person i was curious that this is such a recent thing bullet journals were created in 2013 by Ryder Mm. Carroll and um, he said I had a learning disability that did not allow me to focus very well notes started either as a blank page with no template or as a super rigid template which I didn't understand or enjoy had short bursts of very intense focus so I had to figure out a way to capture things very quickly and um, so that's how he came up with the bullet journal technique which I applaud him for you know finding a technique that worked for him But what I find weird about it is then other people would study his thing and think, right, these are the rules for me. That's the opposite of what he did, isn't it? Like he found the thing that worked for him to organise his head. But why does that mean it would work for everyone else? It's a lot less work to, you know, if you find a system that works for you to use someone else's system, they have to invent it. I'm not sure it is. Well, it depends on the person. I like, again, if you you look at it and go, well, that's not for me, that's fine. But there must be other people who have similar, I don't know, like learning styles or journaling styles. Presumably, which is why it's become popular. But it's, it's basically just paper diaries for hipsters, isn't it? It's adaptable, though. So you're drawing in your own calendar. So I suppose the amount of space per day or per week is not prescribed by uh, the lines printed on the page like your Filofax does. So it's sort of like keeping an infographic of your life, which I think would be quite a nice thing to, to have, maybe. I couldn't do it because uh, I don't really... Whenever I have like a paper diary or anything, after about two days, I stop keeping it. Mm. And also I'd probably spend all the time doing the swirly writing. 
And if I even got to the list, I would feel like that was getting a task done. Like to me, the list writing is more of a task than a lot of the tasks. Yeah, what I find quite interesting is the concept that migrating the lists, which is the terminology he uses for when you have to write out the list again, basically, because there's lots of different pages you put your tasks on, isn't there, in orders of priority. Migrating the lists, continuously writing out the same thing, encourages you essentially to do the fucking thing. Because if you have to right. keep writing it every day, you're like, oh, enough with writing out this task again. I'm just going to do it now. No, with so me, it would just that. be like, just avoid the diary. <laughs> <laughs> that's how my mind works i mean i've got lists i you know i'm a big fan of lists uh and there are certain things on those lists that i've been looking at for a year um but the idea of deliberately contriving to continually write them out to clear my head it just feels like a complete waste of time i don't know i think it works well for some people um because apparently it's good if you have anxiety uh, because you're writing these things down you're making your thoughts orderly and you're putting them on paper so they have a kind of physical presence rather than just this enormous existence in your mind. And so apparently that is very helpful for people. Bullet journal is a mindfulness practice disguised as a productivity system. I'm terrified of mindfulness. I think another reason why this level of listing might be very helpful to some people is when you're depressed, you can think, I haven't done anything today. But then if you break it down, you can be like, oh, I did the laundry. And even something that on another day you wouldn't even register on that day you were like i did achieve something and i ticked it off so i can understand that for a lot of people it has been a very useful process i wonder how long term people can keep it up for because i i can see the initial excitement of having a fresh notebook Mm. and being like okay so in the front i'm going to do this in the back i'm going to keep a list of films i want to watch and draw like a little picture per film and then by like four weeks hence you've not caught up on it How long does the average bullet journaler go for? Yeah, well, the reason that they went viral in the first place was because people were sharing their bullet journals on Instagram, like the artistic ones. Oh, look how organised I am. Look at my swirly writing. Look at my calligraphy. And I think, you know, a common sense evaluation of that surely is saying, are you so organised because you've just spent 10 minutes pimping up a photo of your diary? Like, that's not an organised thing to do. That is a waste of your time. Like, and it's needy as well. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite judgmental. Maybe that's another reason why you don't get it, because as you've said in recent episodes, you're not a visual person, you don't get Instagram. Mm. So these these kind of visual first documents of your life wouldn't necessarily spark excitement in you. Correct. I would be interested to see other people's bullet journals and for them to tell me their systems. Just I'm curious of how how people kind of translate themselves to a page. But I think another reason why I couldn't do this, apart from just being crap at organising and bad at paper diaries, is the only way I can cope with the amount of stuff I have to do all the time is by not looking at lists of it and not itemising it and only thinking about the next couple of things in the queue of concern. Mm. If I was like, okay, every day I'm writing down the queue of concern or every week or every month, I would just be like beside myself with stress well see i thought that but the problem with holding it all in your head is that it is really stressful like you put it on the list and you're like great i don't have to think about it i just look at the list the list tells me what to do today and that's actually quite reassuring yeah that wouldn't work for me i interviewed a guy on the modern man called chris bailey who is one of these guys who like for for a sort of stunty slightly kind of um self-promotional reasons decided to actually try every productivity trick in the book so Mm. he did goal setting he did meditation he did early rising he spent a year trying out productivity techniques and measured the actual outcomes of those and you know when it came down to it and i said to him what's the like what's the thing 
that actually works. Like the stuff about reducing everything into a manageable list of like I can't remember what the number is but it's five or six or seven things per day that you can basically cope with really like when you reduce them down into tasks yeah and in that way I suppose it's similar to the Pomodoro technique that works like not overwhelming yourself like you're saying Helen with like here's a hundred things I'm going to do but saying these are the seven things I'm going to do today that works but I just don't think you need a special pretty diary for that that to me seems like well he called it productivity porn (laughs) that's kind of what it is Mm. isn't it yeah but you know notebooks are lovely yeah, and I'm a fan of the notebook, but again, I say to you, Filofax. Prescriptive. Filofax don't tell me what to do and when. Ryder Carroll is also prescriptive. So th- he's very cleverly, I think, ridden both horses at once here. Because if you go to his website, uh, bulletjournal.com. Oh, and I did. It's it's all about, like, you can use these techniques in any diary. This is an analogue method for the digital age. You don't need to buy my special book. Nonetheless, like, on the homepage, you scroll down once and you're being sold the notebook which is like $20, and the companion app, which also costs money. So I feel like he is shilling stuff, as well as the original book, which tells you how to do it. You could easily, like the novice who thinks, I'm going to revolutionise my life and clear up my organisation, probably the average one spends 30 quid straight off the bat. On a diary, on a plain diary. Exactly, a diary full of possibility. (laughs) It's like Empress New Clothes stuff. Rather than the control of the Filofax. Rather than paying someone to draw the lines for you. and lonely Life is so confusing I need some answers Preferably amusing Now I find A podcast that will suit I listen to Helen and Ali On my half hour commute We've had an email from a couple called A and K uh, no, not the luxury travel agents Abercrombie and Kent, uh, but just a pair of ordinary <laughs> listeners like you. Uh, yeah. And they say, uh, we got married in 2016, join the club, uh, and whilst we know that many couples look at wedding gifts as a way to recoup some of the costs of their wedding, we didn't feel that way. Uh, our wedding was very cheap. Uh, the venue was a public park by the ocean. Uh, I got my dress at a thrift store for $60 Ooh. and we made our own cake. God, that really is a budget wedding, isn't it? Yeah, good for you, though. Thus, it was alarming to us when a dear friend who attended our wedding started going on and on about how she hadn't given us a gift, despite our insistence that it wasn't necessary. Yeah, people still want to give you gifts, though. They do, yeah. And you can't really... Yeah, you can't... So Even people we didn't invite to the wedding, even though we were specifically saying don't give us a gift, then took it personally as if we were saying, don't you get us a gift, because it'll be horrible. You'll ruin our love. We just (laughs) genuinely didn't want gifts. They continue. In what we felt was a slightly panicked attempt to just give us something, about a year after the wedding, she gave us a painting that she had done as a gift, photo attached. Yep. How would you describe this painting, Helen? Abstract. Yeah, I would say it's abstract, big brush strokes, some quite Mm. thick paint. I'd say the the colour that catches my eye is yellow. The background is mainly white, but there is some, like, Pale blue splodges, some teal and a bit of black and a tiny bit of what looks like gold but could just be light on the uh, painting. To me, that's a painting. If I saw it on the wall of a cafe of a three-star hotel, I, 
I wouldn't think twice. Right. I think, yeah, that looks like it belongs there. I like it. That could be the solution to this question, then, if they can afford to send it to you. I don't have anywhere to live, so... Uh... Um, they say, uh, I think she thought we wanted it because one evening at her house, she was showing us some art that she'd been working on, and we expressed politely that we thought the piece she ultimately gave us was very nice. But we were just trying to be kind. What else does one do when an amateur artist friend shows you their art? We were once at Martin's cousin Michelle's house and um, I was admiring a painting on her wall and she took it off and gave it to us and it was one she'd done, but I it, I genuinely love it. Yeah, so it's great. It's great for us. Yeah, I feel a bit guilty for having it, but very happy well, about it. Well, it's in storage it. at the moment, so no one gets to look at it. But Okay, but but that's an answer to a different sub-question to the one A and K have asked. The one A and right. K have asked is, what do you do when an amateur artist friend shows you their art that you're indifferent to? That's That's the implication. That's a valid sub-question. What do you say to that? You ask them about their motivations. You don't express an opinion on it. You ask (laughs) them about how they do it, what materials they use, how long it takes, how often they get to paint. Just like ask about them rather than the specifics of the painting. I say, wow, what a man slash lady of many talents you are. I'm like, wow, look at that. Who knew you could do things like that? So I make it about them rather than the horseshit that they've produced. That's implicit still that you like what they've produced. Yeah, but it's it's implicit, but it's not explicit, is it? I'm not saying, what a beautiful painting. For some people, an implicit cue is enough. Over a year on from that, continues A&K, our friend is asking us why we still haven't put up the painting. The reasons are, one, we don't like it. Two, it isn't framed and can't be hung as is, and a custom frame will likely cost over $100. I disagree. It looks like it's painted on board, and I yeah. quite like that look unframed, and you, you prop it up. That's right. Unless your picture is, you know, badly taken and actually it is a piece of paper. I don't see why you couldn't just hang that on the wall like that on a nail. Yeah. And if it is a piece of paper, then you can hang it up with bulldog clips. But I would prop it up and and also some people prop up art in layers so they have a kind of picture overlapping another picture. So if you really hate it, you can have it in a group. Well, the third reason they say is even if we do find a frame for it, it's a pretty big piece. So we just can't find an inconspicuous corner of our home to hang it in. We feel it either has to be prominently displayed or not displayed at all. And they've gone for the latter. It sounds like it. Mm. Uh, Helen answered me this, what do we do? It feels wrong to bin it. It's definitely wrong to bin it. Yes. <laughs> um, or to give it to a thrift shop. Yes. It feels wrong to give it back to her. I mean, out of the three options, that's the best. Uh, I suppose it could live in a closet until we both die and our heirs have to deal with it. This is why I find receiving gifts difficult because I feel so obligated to the gift that I'd rather just never get a gift. Some people just are quite easygoing about the materials that make up their homes. You know, aesthetically, they're happy to look at different things from different influences in different places. And other people are really, you know, they design everything, they think about everything carefully, they consult Pinterest boards, and then you're fucking with them by giving them something different. I think that's the problem. I think my answer to this question is coloured by the fact that from the photo they've sent us, I think the painting looks fine to quite nice. And certainly not offensive. When they mentioned that they'd been sent a picture, my mind immediately thought, oh, is it going to be like a pastel-coloured painting of a unicorn rearing over a waterfall and it's just too cheesy to have in your yeah, home? or like a Gilbert and George-style splayed arsehole or something. Or like something that's very cutesy. Those Love Is cartoons, they'd knocked off a load of those in their own yeah. style. But I, I quite like it. And maybe their home is one that doesn't lend itself to having clutter And that's why they don't want it, because they're like, we have one painting up in this place and I don't want it to be that one. But what I would do with it, I would have it like in the toilet, maybe, or the hallway, like a small space that every inch of the wall is covered with different pictures. Yes. Of of, contrasting styles. 
This is it. So they say it has to be displayed prominently, but they don't say in which room. I mean, you know, you might have a spare room, you might have a staircase. Um, Like you say, you might even have a toilet where there's pictures hanging up. And then it's not really a case of displayed prominently. It's a case of making it less mundane. You know, I yeah. guess you do have to look at it every day, though, and they don't like it. Well, yeah, but then if you if there's a way to put it up above the toilet, then you barely have to look at it if you're sitting on That's the toilet. That's a good idea. Above the toilet. Looks like pride of place, but you don't have to see it. My aunt, who was an antique print dealer, she had um, a, a downstairs loo that had like a very busy wallpaper, like kind of big William Morris print style, dark green wallpaper. And then it was covered like floor to ceiling in framed pictures. And it looked great. So I think maybe do something like that. Group it with other things that are high contrast. That might help neutralise it. I wonder if there's a third way, which is find someone who loves it, then sell it to them and say to the person who gave it to you, I know it's really difficult, isn't it? It's a gift, a wedding gift. But like, let's say, for example, that person owns a three-star hotel and they want to hang it in their cafe. That might be exciting for the person who painted the painting. Here's a long view kind of thing that might help your friend. Mm -hmm. Engineer it so that she gets an exhibition somewhere. (laughs) <laughs> she doesn't like her work Alan she's not going to be able to propagate an exhibition for her I don't know and then like give it to the exhibition and then just don't get it back it's an option and just yeah. if you have like a local cafe that yes. puts up different artists art like there's a greasy spoon in Crystal Palace that used to do this like every yes, month yes. the so pictures would change this is so beautiful the gift you gave us was so beautiful that uh, a local art dealer wanted to exhibit it right would you mind terribly if we gave it to them right i mean that's yeah. perfect because it gets it out of your way and she's very proud yeah. and whereas if you give it back to her i think the picture will always remind her of how you didn't like it sure it's yeah no don't give tarnished. it back to her i just said that was the best out of the three bad options i, I have a friend who um he got together with uh, someone a little while ago and She's a painter and in the first few weeks of their relationship, a friend of theirs was like joking about her doing a topless painting of my friend. So she did one and like it's a really good painting. It's really interesting style, but he is topless and kind of doing bedroom eyes in it. (laughs) And then he's, (laughs) then everyone is like, he's a handsome man. What do we do with this painting? Because the friend was Mm. like, it's weird to have a large topless painting of my friend. And then, but my friend of whom the painting was, is like, you can't have a topless painting of yourself in your house. Can we have it? I, I guess that would be the solution to give it to us. Everyone give us your unwanted paintings. And, and, and now we're going to get an amazing collection. And now he and the artist have broken up. Like, what do you do with the topless painting of yourself by your ex? Well, if you have any paintings that are awkward in some way, I'd uh, sure be faintly interested to see pictures of them and hear why they're causing you so much trouble. And all our contact details to send us those are on our website, answermethispodcast.com. And using those contact details, you can, of course, also send us your questions for episode 371. Yes, and uh, if you want to send us a question in your voice, the safest way to do so is to record a voice memo and email it to us. Indeed. Uh, We will be back on February the 21st with a retro Answer Me This, an episode from our 12 years worth of archive. Only if you subscribe. Got to subscribe Only if you to subscribe. get it. Only available You need for a to month. subscribe to the show. Yes. Um, and by the way, if you've never clicked play on any of those, you might not realise we do record brand new introductions for those. So if you're craving an extra six minutes or so of uh, bonus content, there it is for you, folks. Yeah. Look out for that. What do we think about our terrible past selves? <laughs> In detail. Yes. Um, uh, we have other projects online as well. Helen? I make The Illusionist podcast an entertainment show about language which you can find at theillusionist.org. And a notable recent episode includes... Um, I had Susie Dent from Countdown on the first episode of this year. For 
etc. What a dream. <laughs> She's a dictionary dreamboat. Uh, and uh, I have a podcast called The Week Unwrapped. Uh, it is, as the name would suggest, a weekly show. Um, each week, myself and three very clever people from The Week magazine's digital team uh, sit down and talk about three stories you might have missed. So if you're a bit depressed by Brexit and Trump, uh, find out what else you should be depressed about. <laughs> the stories you've missed. Uh, so in recent on. weeks, uh, for example, we have covered uh, the dating leave policy they have in China for female employees over 30. Uh, we have talked about the trend for human composting and also why elephants are being born without tusks. Uh, you can find Aww. all that kind of thing each week at theweekunwrapped.com. And it is hosted by me, so even if those stories sound serious, I do try and bring my trademark levity to uh, those conversations. Uh, Martin? I'm releasing a song a week for 40 weeks. It's called Year of the Bird, uh, and you can get it at palebirdmusic.com. Oh. Uh, there'll be a new song every week. That's the sound of me in real life hearing about that project for the first time. <laughs> uh, good. Okay. Well, I shall check that out. Can you download them in uh, MP3 form? Uh, you can download them if you pre-order the album, uh, which will be... There we go. Well, it won't be for... You can order like 10 tracks at a time. It's not like you have to buy a 40. That's a bit ridiculous. So listen to those and then come back on the first Thursday of each month for a fresh new Answer Me This. Bye! Bye.